0: Welcome to the farm one podcast where we uncover local food stories, sustainable living and hidden stories behind our food and agriculture system so that we can be a little bit more thoughtful about our food. My name is Ina Chubaleja, chief of staff at farm one. And today I'm joined by Rob Lang and Michael Chin. Michael, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you. Ina. I'm really excited about all of the news that we're about to talk about. It's, uh, I've been doing my very best to bottle it all in, not talk about it with anyone else or anywhere else and save it all for today. How are you doing, Rob?
2: I'm great. I had a really good weekend. We did a little farm one retreat uh, over to New Jersey where we did a hike and then we were treated to some really delicious food from Ina's boyfriend, Mike, who cooked us like fresh bread. And we had pizza and we had these pretty great vegan hot dogs that we kind of roasted over a little fire. And then we had s'mores. And then I went to Governor's Island yesterday, which is open again. It's my favorite place in New York City. If you haven't been there and you live in New York City, you are missing out because you get on a little ferry. It takes like, I don't know, four minutes to get there. And then you arrive and you're in like a little wonderland where there's no cars and there's no Busyness, and you can just bike around and get some great Jamaican food, and you can have a drink if you want as well. But you can lay out in the grass, and I don't know, it's just amazing. It's like a sort of um, paradise, especially when it gets really hot in the city. Governor's Island is always like a sort of three or four or five degrees cooler, a little bit of breeze. You can watch some boats go by. So when I go there, I just, I don't know, it makes my whole weekend seem a lot better. So. So yes, I'm doing great as well. <laughs> did, did Tyler get to go? No, no dogs. No dogs allowed, oh, no man. pets, which is fine. I mean, I'm fine to have a little break from my my puppy. You know, I'm okay. It makes us both stronger, I think.
1: Stronger characters, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. fair enough, yeah. fair enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's always, Governor's Island is a great spot and it's always crazy to feel that temperature difference so quickly. That's awesome. That sounds like a great weekend. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, t- on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the latest news in the food and vertical farming industry. But before we jump in, I do want to share that we have an upcoming podcast interview with Benjamin Lore, who is the author of The Secret Life of Groceries. Be sure to subscribe to get a notification when that podcast episode gets published. And then every time we share a new episode. Uh, So let's jump into the industry news. Um, We have a really exciting announcement from the food industry in New York City. Um, Michael, do you want to start us off by sharing this exciting announcement?
1: Yeah, yeah, let's jump straight to it. So yesterday morning, as I was fluttering around on Twitter, as I can do from time to time, the New York Times published a story about Eleven Madison Park, and uh, the changes that they're making when they reopen in June, and the big news there is that they're going to shift to an entirely plant-based menu. So this is pretty significant for those of you who aren't familiar with Eleven Madison Park. Uh, they're a three-star, three, three Michelin-star restaurant in New York City. They won the uh, World's Best Restaurant award back in 2017. And, you know, I'd say that it's, it's, it's fair to say that they're recognized worldwide as one of the best restaurants. And uh, I think the chef over there, Daniel Hum, is certainly one of the most creative people right now in, in the culinary arts. So straight to you, Rob, what are your thoughts on all this?
2: Uh, straight to me, why, why forever would I care about this? Now it's uh-huh. like, it's super exciting. Um, it was funny to get the announcement. I read it from the email that if you're on their email list, they sent out like a long written email yesterday. And actually, it was sort of buried a little bit in the text. You know, they're talking about reopening, which they're hoping to do on June the 10th. Um, and as part of that, they've been rethinking their whole philosophy. And, and Daniel has been thinking about, you know, where, where food comes from, but also their responsibility as a, you know, provider of a large quantity of food to be... Uh, ethical and sustainable. And I think that it's clear that, you know, the last year has been um, a period of thought for a lot of people in the food industry and AMP, you know, helped out a lot by providing a lot of meals from their kitchen. I mean, 1000s thousands and 1000s thousands of, of meals uh, through rethink food that go to, you know, underserved communities and people who didn't have access to food last year. And so I think that that's caused a lot of sort of thought, Um, as as well. And I think it's a quite dramatic announcement that is a really bold step for an institution that, you know, would often be encouraged to kind of rest on its laurels, keep doing a good thing, keep making money, keep getting awards. So this is a really, really risky move um, for a big organization. Uh, In my opinion, it's obviously the right move. I think this is kind of the way to make things happen. Uh, if you provide exquisite food that happens to be plant based, I think you can um, make a lot of people happy and have a lot of uh, success, you know, rather than sort of trying to drill people, drum people over the head with, you know, facts and figures and things like we might do on this podcast instead serve them something really delicious. um, And they may be quite convinced. Um, You know, I've had a couple of experiences of dining there and both have been uh, really some of the most memorable memorable meals of my life, I, I certainly as a vegan person have felt more special there because the menu that I got was not a sort of second rate version of the meat menu. It was a uh, in, in many respects, more luxurious menu than what my kind of co diners had had. Uh, one example I remember was the, the sort of standard item was a, a caviar dish on a bed of um, it was a mayonnaise or something and the vegan version was a truffle dish on top of a vegan mayonnaise you know so it was like an equally luxurious item but uh plant-based um you know they've mentioned in I think you know there's been a few articles about this already they've mentioned that you know of course the food cost may go down for them but the labor cost actually probably goes up and so know some people who've tried to be critical of this move you know they make sort of snippy comments on twitter like oh i'm not paying whatever for a piece of broccoli or something because they very much equate like the price they pay for a meal with the actual ingredient cost but of course at this kind of level of fine dining you know it's a whole piece it's labor it's a sort of exquisite art project almost to deliver a plate of food and so I think that one of the things people have to remember about this is that, you know, food cost is just one thing and, and sourcing, you know, the best quality ingredients is not a cheap process either. Um, so, so that's one thing. The other, the other thing I think is interesting is that they mentioned they you know, a lot of labor going into the creation of plant-based butters and creams and milks and, and all kinds of things like that. And, and I think that points to this problem that there still isn't really a solid market yet for. Artisanal kind of very high quality vegan based ingredients like butter, like cheese, like creams, you know, there are mass market products now and there are a few, you know, good makers of um, things like vegan cheeses, but you know, to the extent that a market exists for it, it's nothing like the traditional dairy market. And so if you're operating at a very high level as EMP is, you know, you got to be making a lot of things from scratch, you know, if you want to make a cake, you're kind of working from all the way back to how do you make a butter sometimes. And and that's, you know, significantly um, expensive and and time consuming, Uh, but I think they can do it. They've, you know, they're a team that can take on very, very challenging things. And I think a team that constantly reinvents. And so I'm very excited to see this happen. I'm super excited to see that dining room. You know, it's a huge dining room with vaulted ceilings. And it's like a a very, special location and i'm I'm just excited to see that dining room full of people who will be eating a plant-based meal it's very very um kind of groundbreaking and i'm really curious about the first reactions of course i mean it must be a sort of uh nail-biting time for the team there but i think also they probably come with some confidence because they you know do incredible menu testing and they know what they're doing you know um There's been some comments from suppliers to EMP, you know, farms that have raised poultry and meat uh, for the restaurant, you know, some of them perhaps felt a little bit blindsided by this news because it did come out of the blue. Uh, But I think if you look at, you know, the strategy behind it there wasn't, it probably wasn't really a way to gradually reveal this news, I think that they did the right thing by making it um, a sudden announcement. Um, But yeah, it does show that, you know, if you move away from animal products, you will create some unhappy farmers and that then, you know, creates questions about what do they do. And I think that that plays out in fine dining, it plays out, you know, on the grocery store shelf with almond milk versus dairy milk. And so I think we'll see more and more of this over the next few years. And it's really going to be curious to see how that plays out. Um, So overall, I'm really, really excited about this. It's like one of the most exciting announcements this year, I think, and I'm very, very interested to go and eat there. Um, again, I've always had a fantastic experience, but I think it's gonna be a whole new uh, whole new thing. So yeah, what do you think, Ina?
0: I'm also really excited about this decision. I think that it definitely is a statement and something much larger when the best restaurant in the world is making a decision like this it's a signal for something way bigger than what's literally on the plate and in the announcement in the in that email you know it was was a demonstration that the food system is definitely not where it should be right now and i can imagine that this is setting a really big example for the food industry and other restaurants and i'm imagining and expecting now that the food industry is going to dramatically change in the next decade because of this decision. So I really am excited about what the future of the food industry and restaurants are going to hold now. And this reminds me, please excuse my French accent. Um, this reminds me of Eric, Chef Eric Repair from La Bernadine. Um, one of the best seafood chefs in the world um, just released and published a vegetable-based cookbook, Vegetable Simple. And it was a moment of pause for me. It's like, what is, what is this saying? When one of the best seafood chefs is making a vegetable-based cookbook. Um, and this feels similar, that vegetables deserve that same care, intent, and attention to detail as meat-based dishes. Oh, and by the way, it also makes you healthier and the planet healthier. So I'm totally in. And I'm really excited to to eat there again. Michael, what about you? What are you thinking?
1: I have a few thoughts about this. I think. You know it, it, I echo very similar sentiments to both of you i The things that stand out to me are that I think culturally and traditionally in in our society, we have this sort of sense that vegetables are a side dish and Rob, to your point there's there isn't a huge market of of established ingredients, so you do have to invent and 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 make a lot of that yourself I mean I would also guess that a restaurant like EMP makes a lot of their their uh, ingredients and, you know, bases from from scratch. I, I, I tend to imagine, you know, some of these uh, higher-end restaurants are like that. Um, but it's, you know, to to try to turn a dish or a selection of vegetables, which you know, our palates aren't attuned to and those types of things, into this delightful, amazing, uh, uh, taste experience, sensory experience, is probably a lot more difficult than going for, you know, the easy shot that's like fry up some bacon and put it on the plate, right? I, I mean, I, I know that sounds crazy, <laughs> but okay, go turn a bunch of vegetables, which not only are you, you know, societally and culturally sort of see it a very different way, but bring out the essence of that and turn it into something really special is probably quite difficult. Um, maybe not technically difficult for chefs at that level, but culturally difficult, very difficult for customers to imagine in the whole thing. So I commend them for taking on that challenge. I commend them as artists, as creators, as chefs, as people that are uh, dedicated to their craft and, and obviously some of the most talented in the world at that. So I think that alone, you, know, you should be very curious about that. Can they do it? What can they do? What will it turn out like? And what does it make you think of, which, you know, let's, you do find dining for a number of reasons. The food itself and the experience and everything itself of the the dish is only one part of that, right? that whole fine dining experience, you know, I, again, back to Twitter and all of the nonsense that came out of it, you pay a thousand dollars for a meal like that. It's not because the duck is the most amazing duck in the world. It might be, but is it worth a thousand dollars? Well, I, I suppose that's up to others paying for it. But as part of that, you're paying for that entire experience. The entire moment that you make the reservation that you walk through the front doors, that you get greeted, you get brought to your table, you know, the entire part of that is what you're paying for. And that's what fine dining, I think, at least my take on it, is is and is meant to be. And so it's the higher, highest end of it. Do you eat that every day? I mean, if you could, and if you're in the position to do so, that would be wonderful, I'm sure. Um, but most people probably don't. I mean, it's the same thing as well in um, in Formula One racing. A lot of technology that was developed in Formula One racing and the engineering that appears in the cars and all of that eventually trickles its way down into that Toyota Camry that you saved all that money for to buy, right? So take ABS brakes, for example, that came out of Formula One racing. So I think that's a way that I think about what EMP is doing, what Daniel and his team are doing in that they're not your everyday meal. They're giving you an experience that awakens your imagination to make, makes you think about what you just went through and makes you think about the possibility of it, right? And the fact that that it's on Twitter and, and in the news and everyone's starting to talk about it, I think is a really great thing. Now, you may never become a, a full-time vegan, you may never change your eating habits, but if you get past the nonsense that that we all feel these days where we're outraged about everything, and you actually think about what they're trying to do, uh, I think that's really valuable. And I think that that's great. So uh, those are my thoughts. But that said, Rob, I know that you've spent a lot of time studying and learning how to cook and uh, with these types of ingredients. What makes it so difficult?
2: I think it's... It, you know, you, you really hit on it.
1: I think that it, it's a question of
2: sometimes you'll take an ingredient in the traditional dining world like bacon, it's a really good example. It's a fatty product, it's, it's salty, you know, it's cured with salt. Um, it's often sweetened in America, maple curing, that kind of thing, right? So you've got three of these sort of very desirable qualities in a dish and then it has a crunch to it. If it's cooked, you know, in a certain way and a crackle, um, and so it's almost like this perfect desirable item and you, and, you know, if you wanted to create that same effect with a vegan, uh, ingredient or combination of ingredients, it's actually, you know, it's just tough. you got to combine, like for instance, to create that umami, maybe you're going to use something from the mushroom family, or maybe you're going to use some kind of miso or something or soy sauce. And, um, you know, that immediately you're involving like fermentation in that, um, you know, to get that crunch and that crackle that from something where, you know, that's a a saturated fat that's coming from an animal, like it just inherently has some of those qualities. If you want to do that in a vegan way, you've got to sort of, you know, even look at the molecular structure at a certain point and go like, how am I going to create this kind of structure that's going to give me that crackle? Um, So even something so simple like bacon could could require a huge amount of work to do um, in a plant-based way. And I think that the, You know, the other sort of piece of it is a legacy of culture. If you look at cheesemaking, cheesemaking has been around in in some forms for thousands of years. Doing that with a nut, probably nut milk or, you know, some other non-dairy milk, that's a very new practice. You know, people weren't doing that back in the year 1281 in France. Like there was no reason for them to do it. There was no inclination, they're probably technically it, it was would have been really tough to do it with the ingredients on hand. And so it just doesn't have that legacy. And if you look at what, what's happening now, people are developing cheese making skills with with nut milks and other um, cultured milk products and fermenting. But it's, you know, it's been happening for like a few decades at most compared to 1000s of years, like incredibly difficult, you know, so I think you hit the nail on the head It is part of it. It's just this difficulty of pre- preparation. And I think that the you know the thing that they're trying to do it does it does feel quite similar to formula one in that they've got clearly the best or one of the best cooking teams in the world and they and they experiment with products all the time they experiment with dishes they have a super high attention to detail they have amazing technical capabilities so they can take on some of these challenges and i i hope and expect they will discover some things in that process that they can sort of trickle down to the mortals you know reading the cookbook so I would be so excited to read a cookbook in a couple of years time where they you know uh, explain some of these things um, and I and the last thing about that I would say is creative constraints. I think it's I mean it's, I'm not the first person to say this creative constraints produce some of the best artistic works you know give give a filmmaker a year to make a film or give them a day they, you know, the creative differences may not be that great. You you might not get better results. And so I love that aspect of it as well. So for me, it hits so many points, it, you know, as the plant-based angle, I think the creative challenge is really immense. And then I think the technological advances are going to be really interesting, uh, as well.
1: Yeah, now I know you've been, you've been sharing a lot of your experiences with plant-based foods. So when, when you, when you st- did you, had you always been into plant-based or is that kind of a recent thing for you?
0: Um, the last time that I was consistently eating meat products. Hi, Georgie. A little bit of
1: dog action there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, mailman.
0: <laughs> um, I, the last time I was consistently eating meat was in 2018. So a couple of years of a predominantly plant-based diet. And a lot of it was because of the lack of action for climate change. And it was something that, you know, this was my little piece of action that I could take to help prevent, you know, any more increases in, in in the crisis of climate change. I know that in the, you know, Back to last week's podcast episode of the perceptions of climate change and the impact that they can have. This is probably not the most impact that I could have in changing my behavior, but I needed to take responsibility in every little piece that I could for the overall impact that I could have as an individual. So, you know, experimenting with plant based foods has been challenging. You know, the removing fat from a lot of the dishes, you know, what Rob was saying about bacon. We had that experience just this past weekend making pizzas. A vegetable-based pizza without that fat, we were making like a plant-based sausage with broccoli and um, some other vegetables. Usually that cooks down in a fat and we had to add a different substitute so that those vegetables could cook down.
2: Do you think that it would be difficult for you culturally with your family to, to say like, Oh, I'm going hundred percent vegan.
0: Definitely. And we're all in that tension right now. So a lot of people are in my family are going plant-based because of health issues or health concerns as well as climate concerns. And that almost means that we have to move away from traditional cultural dishes. Because there hasn't been a lot of experimentation, or you know, no one's really leading the way in plant-based Filipino dishes, and so it, it is a tension right now. And I would love to see more plant-based Filipino cooking. And there are definitely some out there, um, but yeah, in our family, we have decades and decades of recipes that are all pork-based because we had, uh, you know, we had pig, pigs in the backyard. And so it is a challenge, but it's something that we, we want to be healthier and we want the world to be healthier. So it's not something that we're unwilling to sacrifice, but it does, it is a challenge. It does present uh, attention.
2: Maybe we should move on to the next news article then about Epicurus, uh, Michael. What, what do you think? It seems like a very natural segue.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. So for those of you who don't know, or maybe haven't heard, um, Epicurus. Uh, which is a website that's been around actually for a really long time. I remember this being one of the early sort of websites uh, during the early dot-com days in the late 90s that um, sort of really made its name and, and, and all of that. Anyway, it's a website with a large uh, res- recipe uh, repository. It's maybe one of the most well-known Um, about uh, I I guess a few months ago or actually a few days ago, they announced that they will no longer be publishing any new uh, beef recipes. And the New York Times ended up covering this. And, uh, you know, they in in their post they said that we've cut out beef. They were beef won't appear anymore in any new recipes, articles and newsletters. And it's sort of the reasons are all very straightforward and everything that we've been talking about. Um, It's about sustainability. uh, And in their words, it's about not giving airtime to one of the world's most worst world, I'm sorry, world's worst climate offenders. Um, And I thought this was actually quite funny. They said, we think this is this decision. uh, I'm sorry, this is terrible. I'm having a terrible time reading today. We think of this decision as not anti-beef, but rather pro planet. Uh, so I, I like that. I think that's quite clever. Uh, and of course, uh, a lot of rage on Twitter, as usual, but I know. What are your thoughts on this?
0: I love reading the negative reactions just as much as the positive reactions. And this reminds me a lot of a news story in the past. Last year, a school in France removed meat from their school menus. And my favorite part of this story is how Epicurious pulled the plug on beef recipes a year ago. And were people angry then? And I I do want to note that it's not that Epicurious isn't taking away beef recipes completely. They're still going to show the recipes that they had from 2019 and before. They're just not investing any new ones. Um, I do have personal stories about offering a completely plant-based dinner party, but I didn't say it in the beginning. I just said at the end, once everyone was done eating, oh, by the way, this was completely ba- plant-based. And it's always really encouraging to hear guests say, oh, I didn't even notice. But this does, the negative reactions do bring up a larger issue. It's not just the recipes, it's you know who's responsible for climate change. And climate change has definitely been politicized. And I have a feeling that the negative comments aren't from the argument of climate change. It's the psychology that something is being taken away and the autonomy or the agency of what I get to choose to eat. And that decision is being taken away from people. This is a signal that people are going to be angry about that. And I understand because that sense of choice is really important. And people are angry at something larger than just, these beef recipes and it really emphasizes the issue that someone has to take responsibility for climate change all of us do and epicurious is taking their small piece of the pie of responsibility by saying we're not going to invest in something that's going to contribute to climate change so it's really encouraging to see this company take that stance and you know person people individuals are taking that stands by not eating meat-based products. And so everyone has to take that little piece of the pie of their responsibility for for climate change. Rob, what do I you l-
2: think? Yeah, I, I, it made me think what you just said, actually, that there's this sort of, uh, with the EMP announcement with Epicurious, the two sort of organizations that are creating, right? They're putting things out there in the world. You know, EMP is creating a whole meal experience. Epicurious is creating recipes that show people what to do with the food and it is the responsibility of creators to choose the path forward you know and so if you're a magazine or a publication that's putting things into the world you have the right to decide what you do and as a reader as a consumer of information you know ultimately you can choose what publication to read but you know if you're not creating something and you're just receiving information then that is the burden of a consumer right you know, there's nothing you can do about it in a way. And I think that as I love that point you made that they, you know, they they didn't um, they didn't stop doing beef today. It was like a whole year ago that they did it, and they didn't tell anyone. And that is just the classiest, coolest thing to do, I think. And and turn around and go like, yeah, we've been doing this for a while. The other thing I was thinking was, you know, at this point in 2021, is anyone really coming up with a bunch of new stuff to do with beef? Like, like, is anyone really, you know, oh my God, guys, we're being so creative right now. we got this Wellington, we got a steak. This is, it's, it's been done, it's established. If you want to find a great way to cook a steak, it's it's out there times a million. So I think that if you want to be a company that's focused on innovation and hopefully Epicurus sees itself as that in terms of recipes, you know, it, it's, it's harder ground to find innovation with beef anyway. So I think creatively it, it makes sense. I I certainly feel a bit like there may be a bit more anger coming out there. If you see another public, you know, if if Epicurious does this, there's pressure on like Bon Appetit, despite all of its problems anyway, um, to do something like that. There's pressure on, I don't know, New York Times Cooking, for instance, there's pressure on. If you look at a lot of the recipes, I mean, I'm certainly a devoted reader of New York Times Cooking, there's certainly not a lot of new beef recipes out there. There's certainly much more of a focus on, you know, cross-cultural dishes and representation, and and doing things that might work for cooking at home in a, on a weeknight kind of stuff. And um, certainly, yeah, not a heavy emphasis on beef. And so I I think that this may, you know, create a little bit of pressure on other folks. And also, you know, it may spur someone to say, I'm going to start a Uh, cooking website that's all about all the stuff that you're not allowed to talk about anymore as a sort of angry reaction, I can kind of see that happening. And like, you know, my opinion is whatever, you know, I think this is all about, okay, who's making the best food, who's making the best recipes, if they don't happen to be about beef, I think that's a huge message. So uh, I think it's, it's interesting. The last thing I was thinking was also, when it comes to beef, I think you know we've got this sort of hamburger situation sorted out now on a plant-based level like a plant-based hamburger is okay maybe it's not perfect but like it's pretty much there when it comes to like a steak like a filet mignon or like a a tenderloin or like some side of beef there isn't a plant-based alternative to that right now it doesn't like to be honest it doesn't exist um i don't really care but like it doesn't exist i think a lot of people do care about that and there isn't like a cell cultured alternative yet and so I think that, you know, that'll be sort of the last holdout of the beef fans. Um, and you probably, that will happen. I could see that happening within the next 10 years. And then the situation gets even more sort of developed. So uh, yeah, but good on Epicurious, I think. Back to Michael.
1: Let's be honest. Most of the beef and steak and your whatever that you eat in most restaurants, at least here in the United States, just a slab of protein that's been put on a bit of fire and there's a ton of salt a ton of butter and a ton of other stuff it doesn't taste like beef it has roughly the texture of meat and it's put on a plate and there may be some french fries and I don't know maybe ketchup so what are people angry about it's not about beef it's about whatever so anyway um I, I don't know. I, I think that the the line in there, uh, in Epicurus's post said, uh, that, that really stood out to me, said it all. The traffic and engagement numbers on these stories don't lie. When given an alternative to beef, American cooks get ha- hungry. So uh, I think that's great. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, maybe tune in to the next week's podcast where we talk about the parlor for omnivores uh, in reaction to this. But you know, I think, uh, <laughs> I, I think we'll be okay. And I think that it's great. I think that it's fun. Uh, I, I, I think that it's awesome what they're doing, um, you know, and, and yeah, if we can make plant-based food taste better and put it more in the rotation of, of home cooks, uh, great. And, you know, if I'm a home cook, uh, which I, I tend to try to do from time to time, you know, I, I I'd, I'd love more ideas. Uh, simple techniques <laughs> tend to do well, so send them in, people. Awesome, awesome. I love yeah.
0: the I love the pressure that you were talking about on other creators now. That like the balls in your court now. You have to be responsible as well. You can't just sit on your hands as a creator. So I'm really excited about seeing what's coming next.
1: 100, percent yeah. All right, let's move on. Enough, uh, enough of this excitement coupled with a bit of rage and disappointment. Sorry, I'm in a bit of a mood today. Anyway, let's, uh, let's talk about the industry. So a couple of really fun things that, that I think happened. One, Agritechure, uh, which is a firm that we know very well. Uh, so they're a consulting company and they work with a lot of uh, vertical farms, restaurants, even cities, I think, that plan out uh, sort of urban farming, indoor farming and, and the like. Um, So we have a pretty, pretty, I'd say, a very close relationship with them, which I think, Rob, uh, you can certainly shed a lot more light on uh, in in a moment. But they put together a list on their blog uh, about the most innovative vertical farming companies of the decade. Um, The last one that we're going to talk about is maybe the most exciting one, but let's run through the list quickly. Uh, So the first one, Vertical Harvest, uh, because of their innovative employment model focused on creating jobs and for differently abled adults to solve a critical social challenge in the community while also of course also providing fresh produce uh, to this more remote region rob what do you think of what vertical harvest is doing
2: oh fantastic i love it uh, i've met a couple of people from the organization uh they built a really sort of great looking facility uh in wyoming um they've employed people who would otherwise find it quite difficult to find employment they've worked hard at this i think they're due to open a couple of new facilities as well uh, in the northeast uh, later this year or next year i love it i, I think it's great and I, i'd love to see more examples of this around the world
0: i'm excited to see that people can imagine themselves as farmers who didn't traditionally think that they could be farmers and the archetype of who a farmer is is changing
2: yeah, maybe I want to, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I realize that maybe I want to talk a little bit, a bit more about this. You know, they work with folks who, um, I think it's fair to say, some of them are on the autism spectrum. Some of them have learning difficulties. I think that one of the cool things about vertical farming, indoor farming, is that it can be a somewhat safe, predictable, pleasant environment for folks who, you know, don't have a full choice of job options to them. And I think that there is many, many examples in the U.S. of unsafe environments to work in, that are repetitive um, forms of labor, that they're not pleasant places to be, that you know they're uh, sometimes dangerous or unfriendly places to be. And I think there's a lot of sort of factory environments. I think you know meat packing is an example of that. And I think farms can be just a genuinely uplifting environment to be in. And I think that this is fantastic that we can share this environment with more people. So I I love this.
1: Great. So I'm going to run through this list really quickly. Now we're uh, coming to the end of time. Uh, I will
2: be briefer next time. I'm so sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So next company, Smallhold. So they called them out because they adapted really quickly from uh, pre COVID days of selling primarily to restaurants to a direct to consumer model. Um, So I know we work with uh, smallhold. What's your take on what they're doing?
0: It's really great to see, you know, that if you can diversify quickly and if you can change the income sources pretty quickly, you're a really adaptable team. And so it's really, it's been great working with them and their products are amazing. And so I think that it's just really exciting to see. I'm glad that they made it through the pandemic and really exciting to see that you know we can continue enjoying their products
1: nice yep yep okay next on the list Aero farms so the giant mammoth factory farm that's out to replace organic farming in california rob what do you think of these guys
2: uh been around for a long time made a lot of early innovation uh part of a back now let's see what happens next that's what i'll say (laughs)
1: Yep, yep. Those uh, heads of lettuce. Uh, better move quickly. Um, okay, InFarm, based in in Germany, uh, they they've been doing a lot of work in uh, grocery stores in Europe, and I think they they might be in Japan and the U.S. now, and in Canada as well. What what's your take on this, guys?
2: Yeah, definitely innovative company, uh, definitely growing really fast, definitely taking a different approach to other people. So I think it definitely fits in this category of innovative. I think now it's a question of like, uh, you know, they've scaled very quickly. Does the business model actually work? That's what we'll know in a couple of years time, but certainly an exciting company, really beautiful farms and um, very attractive uh, in-store units that they have.
0: I think it's important that they've been able to capture this market of retailers and put it in consumer spaces that this is how produce can be grown
1: yeah i think this this approach to uh really looking at the supply chain and bringing production closer to consumption uh you know that's a big part of what we try to do so yeah i love love what they're doing on the retail side um so infinite acres um they uh, grow tomatoes. And uh, I actually, to be honest, don't know a ton about them. Uh, I've not done my homework on this. But uh, what's what's your take on this, guys?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I don't have as much clarity about what they're actually doing uniquely there. I know Henry, you know, pointed out that he ate a tomato from their farm, which was, you know, a really sort of impressive thing. Um, and so I think that they're a company that probably is innovative, but they haven't reach the popular imagination, maybe as much as these other companies. So we will see. Uh, I have to uh, admit some ignorance on this one as well.
1: So is the problem with tomatoes sort of similar with strawberries like we talked about last week. It's sort of bread for transportation and and shelf life versus flavor and all the other stuff. That definitely is a, oh, sorry, Aina, go on.
0: I have a personal experience when I went grocery shopping in Arizona, when I went last year, I had tomatoes and they tasted like nothing because Arizona is not the environment to grow tomatoes. And so I think that this really shows potential for better tasting tomatoes in the market.
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I mean, I love an amazing good tomato, right? But you can only really get it at the farmer's market. You can only really get it certain times of year. It's a very sort of natural product. And I, and I think a lot of consumers have never tasted a good tomato, like genuinely. I think if you actually went around to the suburbs of America and you gave someone a really good tomato, it would be a surprising and startling thing. So potentially if they have some technology to achieve that, interesting.
1: I count myself as one of those people. All right. On to dream harvest. They uh, were picked because of their dedication to keeping sustainability at the core of their business model from sourcing renewable energy to the rethinking their packaging and minimizing waste. Um, so this is great. I, uh, you know, we're again sort of along those same lines. Think about uh, our sustainability and our our carbon footprint and uh, our impact on the, uh, the planet as a whole. So I, th- I think we uh, we can all agree that's a great thing.
2: Yeah, I support it. I wish they changed their packaging, but I support
1: it. <laughs> Cubic Farms, uh, so uh, again, sort of similar to um, uh, Square Roots, I suppose, where they're building systems and shipping containers and, and the like. I, uh, well, do you have any thoughts on these guys?
2: Yeah, I mean, Square Roots, by the way, doesn't make the shipping containers, um, mm-hmm. and so uh, Cubic oh, Farms. Oh, sorry, Freight
1: farms. farms. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Freight Farms actually supplied the farms to uh, Square Roots, and Cubic mm-hmm. Farms is another container farm operator. Uh, you know, I, I have mixed opinions on container farms. I think we've covered it before. They don't, they're not always the most efficient way to do a farm. They tend to be very, very expensive but I think, you know, it's cool to have innovation there. And I think that there's, you know vertical farming should be an ecosystem that can support a variety of different approaches. And so I support that.
1: And uh, last but not least, farm one. So uh, this was picked by Agritecture's Director of Digital Strategy, Ricky Stevens. And to quote, to me, their ability to create such a tangible link between farm and chef was so thrilling, and they became one of several inspirations for me to eventually move back to New York and dive headfirst into the burgeoning urban ag scene. So Rob, what's the relationship with agriculture? Oh, I mean, we paid them hundreds of thousands of dollars to say this, so
2: it's a tight relationship. (laughs) Now, I mean, you know, they helped us out very early on. Henry was um, one of the folks I spoke to before I even uh, considered making a farm. And I remember talking to him uh, from my, I was working in a co-working space in Melbourne for like a few weeks trying to figure out if this was a stupid idea or not. And it was, it was a stupid idea, but uh, Henry spoke to me and he was very helpful. And then he actually, they did a little consulting project with us. They helped us set up our farm at ICE. And it was really a great experience because I kind of came in with a lot of ideas and I had, you know, a a good engineering approach, but I was not someone who had done it before. And I was looking to kind of work with people who knew what they were doing. And actually, Andrew Carter from Smallhold was part of the agriculture team at that point. So the guy who runs Smallhold now was sort of screwing together our, uh, you know, DWC system. Um, but yeah, it's great. And and Henry really has sort of built his business and become this connector of everything to do with vertical farming. You know, if anything comes up to do with urban farming, urban agriculture, vertical farming, et cetera. You no, know, Henry's name was always there. And he travels the world and he speaks and he's an evangelist for the technology. So I think that to be honest, like agriculture should be on their own list in a way. And I'm not just saying that to be nice. I think they're, you know, truly sort of a pioneer in this. So it's obviously really gratifying to be featured, but I think that actually you know we've seen a lot of technical innovation in terms of the the foundations of vertical farming over the past 10 years i think the next 10 years will be more about business model uh, innovation and how do you go beyond just growing a thing and how do you market it how do you make it available how do you work with suppliers how do you do this and that um and so i'm i'm excited about the future of it and i, I think we'll only see more innovation um and you know hopefully from farm one as well we're we're trying to innovate every day really and Uh, COVID has been a very sort of uh, forcing mechanism for a lot of innovation with a lot of companies, and that's certainly true of us. Um, But it's, you know, it's such an exciting field to work in. I'm really, really happy that I did decide to do this company, you know, even though if you look back to 2016, it probably wasn't a good idea at that point. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to be featured.
1: So check out that list at Agritecture's on their blog. Okay, next uh, story, the CEA Food Safety Coalition launches a food safety standard for indoor ag. So the uh, certification process looks at four main areas, hazard analysis, which uh, includes the use of water, nutrients, seeds, growing media, and the inputs, Uh, water that comes into contact with all plants and with food contact services, surfaces, uh, site control infrastructure in the system, and pesticide use and, and also testing. know. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on this?
0: I think this is amazing. I think, and I hope that this safety standards provides more confidence for consumers and more adoption and consumption of indoor grown produce and makes it more available from personal experience as a tour guide i know that some people can be curious and skeptical of where the nutrients come from or how the water is feeding these plants or how these these are growing in these kinds of systems so i'm hoping that these safety standards are going to be valuable for the consumers rob what do you think
2: uh yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think generally it's a great thing. I think the standard's been really carefully developed. We've been part of this process in a very small way. I would say um, I'm I'm very confident it's a thoughtful process with you know really experienced people. And so it's a, it's a serious thing. Uh, that it's not it's not something that you can kind of knock up in an afternoon. It's like okay, we're going to really consult. We're going to look at all the implications of this. And I think they've done that. I'm also glad that smaller growers can be involved there's a little there's a bit of cost associated with it but there's nothing in the standard that will prevent a small grower from being part of this and i think that was something that i was worried about initially i saw a lot of big names attached to this project and not a lot of small ones but i think they've they've done a really good job of making this relatively accessible i'm curious you know it's a big question as to whether consumers will even be aware of this or get behind it. I think that relies on the cooperation of large retailers, uh, It relies on you know, cooperation of other marketing folks as well. I think that you know, the, the good thing about having big players like Bowery, AeroFarms, plenty involved is that there's some cash to, to do that kind of stuff. Um, so let's see, You know, the, the one thing that I think might be interesting to include more as part of this certification, this standard would be some new technologies, I think around tracing, tracking, um, some more granular sort of knowledge about what is going out there. I'm guessing that just wasn't possible with the first standard, but at the moment it's quite a traditional approach where you have like a person with a clipboard come and visit your farm. And I think there might be some technological solutions we could look at in the next 10 years or so um, to make things easier and a little bit more traceable, a little bit safer. Um, But yeah, overall, really cool.
1: Yeah, I think the transparency into the food system and into this type of production is a good thing. Um, you know, we've, we've seen the effects of it from, uh, uh, what is it, Remain Lettuce, I think, had a big problem uh, for a while out of California. Yep. And yep. so, you know, having the transparency and it, partly having people be more comfortable with it, but also holding the industry to account as the industry evolves and gets bigger and bigger, uh, where y- you you begin to have revenue and profit motives sort of begin to take take a a front seat to things. I think having this in place is going to be a good thing. Um, I I do have a question, but maybe we leave this for another podcast about why organic doesn't uh, sort of fit. I I think that's something that maybe we can dive into in more detail on another podcast.
2: Yeah, I think we could easily do a three hour episode about that. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, maybe we'll make make it a specific thing for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Okay, last news story, and this is a bit of company news. So Contain Inc., um, which traditionally has been in the space of uh, aggregating loans and uh, financing and insurance for indoor farms and, and urban farms, launched a new platform. They announced that they launched a new platform called Equipped, and it's the first marketplace of its kind for buying and selling used indoor farming equipment. Um, so this is, uh, this, this is really interesting, I think for the industry, it's one that, you know, we think a lot about because we're, uh, building out our, our new farm in Brooklyn. And as part of that, are looking at sourcing equipment and you know, from traditional suppliers in this space, uh, but also, you know, looking at, uh, how do we reuse some equipment maybe? So, um, Rob, what, what's your, what's your reaction to this platform?
2: To be honest, um, when you launch a two sided marketplace, you need content, you need things on there. And this platform does not really have a lot of things on there. I think I think the press release announced some huge number of huge uh, about equipment available. I just been on I went on yesterday, I went on to see what was there. There's a few racks of a very specific, um, I think it was a and bio uh, vertical farm system on there. That's it. there's like seven items on the platform. So either someone's launched this too early or no one wants to use it or something. Um, I think that you know there's a million two-sided marketplaces that have been launched over the past 20 years in internet world. I'm sure as part of your career, Michael, you've come across a few. You know the classic example was eBay right? Um, and then you have niche marketplaces more like Etsy. you have specific things around cars. They're trying to do this on a vertical, which isn't very big yet. And so I think you need to come in with something really compelling on there. Like you need to find probably, I'm sorry to say, but you need to find a vertical farm, a big vertical farm that's gone out of business. And you need to try to use this platform to sell all the, all the stuff. Um, So I think of it as a kind of weird launch. I wouldn't have launched like this personally. The other thing I would say is depreciation of vertical farming equipment is, is a tough one. You know, LEDs, depreciate real fast uh because if you use leds for five years they're not as good as when you bought them and also the technology has moved on and so you know for someone to want to buy those leds is probably pretty cheap you know to make them make any sense at all disentangling those from the racking system is not much fun um you know disentangling plumbing systems from racking systems is not much fun um and so i think you know i'd love for us to find a greater use for used vertical farming equipment but it, unfortunately the pace of technological change and the complexity of the equipment means that it's, it's actually tough to get a really good deal out of this if you're if you're a company that's operating pro for profit i think there is there are opportunities to reuse equipment um in educational settings and maybe non-profit settings but it's not it's not like a really obvious decision you know if you've got a million dollars in a foundation, and you want to do vertical farming for schools or something, buying a ton of secondhand equipment that's several years old, just might not be the right financial decision for your organization. And so I'm not seeing enough here. That's gonna make me go like, yeah, this is the solution to all these problems, unfortunately.
1: I know any, any thoughts as we wrap up?
0: Yeah, I think that the idea of it is good. I I totally understand, Rob, what you're saying, you know, hopefully that if this develops more, it can make indoor farming more accessible to more people and that, you know, those resources that it took to make those, that equipment don't go to waste.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the undiscussed things about vertical farming is the life cycle assessment of the equipment. You know, we buy equipment is made predominantly from steel. It's made with LEDs, there's rare earth metals in there. If you want to get horrified about something, go and find out where cobalt is mined. You know, so there is a need for this, but like, I think, you know, for instance, the disassembly of this material, just like you know, when you send your iPhone back to Apple, they actually have a robot which takes apart the iPhone and they can extract all the components now, and that is a real piece of IP. That is exciting, you know. Um, Listing a rack on a digital platform that has all kinds of complexities associated with it and shipping and all that kind of stuff, that's not really a solution. That's a, that's a 1990s technology. I want to see people who are coming in and saying, like, no, I'm going to repurpose all these materials. I'll make sure there's zero waste. I'm going to recycle things safely. That, for me, is exciting. And, and so let's see innovations around that kind of stuff uh, out there, please.
1: Let's do it. All right, that's it for uh, for the news this week, everyone. Amazing. Thank you, so
0: much. Thank you so much for listening in to the Farm One podcast. We have lots of exciting podcast guests and episode coming up that will leave you being more thoughtful about your food. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at farm.one and you'll be notified each time there's a new episode. Thank you. I'll see you next time.